We're titling this The Light in the Dark, How God Preserved His Word Through the Ages, because we're going to be focusing on this idea of how God's Word is a light in the dark. And our first part is going to be talking about what Scripture has to say about itself being this light in the dark. Our Sede's passage, our kind of guiding passage as we go through this study, comes from 2 Peter chapter 1. And there, the Apostle Peter says this very interesting thing about God's Word. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We're used to hearing Jesus being described as the light of the world, kind of like in the beginning of uh, John's gospel, where Jesus is described as this light that pierces the darkness. But here, the apostle Peter calls God's word this light, that God has given us a light in the Bible, and that this Bible shines through the darkness. So if we're thinking about the idea that this world is a dark place, well, what's that constant light that's been shining through the entire thing, but that revelation from God that tells us about the light, about Christ? And in that sense, God's word is this light that is completely reliable, that pierces the darkness for us and has been preserved for God throughout all of time. And so our series is going to be focusing on lots of different topics dealing with God's word and how God has preserved that word for us. The first part, what we're going to be exploring today is going to be all about what does the Bible claim about itself? How does the Bible talk about itself? The next thing we're going to talk about then is where did the Old Testament come from? What's sometimes called Old Testament canon formation. And then we're going to be talking about how the Old Testament was preserved through the ages. How did uh, the people in the New Testament um, receive the text of the Old Testament? Then we're going to be talking about where did the New Testament come from? So New Testament canon formation. Was the New Testament preserved through the ages? So we'll talk about whether or not the Bible that you have today, those New Testament words, whether they were the same thing that the original writers wrote down. And then once we kind of lay that foundation, we'll talk about these two subjects that oftentimes come up in discussions about the New Testament. We'll talk about the Apocrypha. What about the books in between the Old and the New Testament? And then we'll also talk about New Testament pseudepigrapha. So what about so-called lost books of the Bible, the books of the Bible, um, these things that are sometimes called gospels that were written around 100 years after uh, the New Testament. And so we'll be going through all of those topics. But the first thing I want us to be focusing on today is the idea of inspiration. So when I was just kind of preparing for things, I just Googled the word inspiration. And this is what Google kind of spit out for me. One of the uh, top hits that came up in that search engine were articles dealing with inspiration. And this is the way that the word was used. How to rediscover your inspiration at work. So these are actually going to all be articles from the Harvard Business Review. How to rediscover your inspiration at work. How to be an inspiring leader and why inspiration matters. And so when we use that word inspiration, what are we usually meaning? Why are we using that word or in what way are we using it? Well, usually when we say something inspires us, we mean it in you know one of a few different ways. One possibility is that uh, someone is motivating us. So maybe think about that first article, how to rediscover your inspiration at work. So in other words, rediscover the thing that motivates you to want to do the work that you're doing. 
Sometimes we use it not just for the idea of just in general being motivated, but also the idea that something inspires you in the sense that it gives you maybe a creative idea or some way of being creative, right? Maybe look at that last one, uh, why inspiration matters. And so we can talk about artists that are inspired by maybe uh, looking at vistas and canyons and beautiful scenes in nature and they're inspired to do work, right? Or they experience something in life and that gives them an idea for a piece of art to create. The other thing that we usually think about though, so we've got uh, you're in general being motivated or something's giving you creative ideas. The third way we use the word inspiration at times is that we talk about this being a trait to motivate people or to help people, right? And that's what we kind of mean when we talk about an inspiring leader, that they have a trait that they own that is able to make them be able to motivate people or to get people to do cool things. So that's the way in general we use the word inspiration. The Bible is described as being the inspired word of God. So what do we mean when we use the word inspired in that context? Well, actually, it's not going to mean any of the things that we're talking about here. We're going to have a very specific definition and way of thinking about that word that we just don't use at all in any of the common ways that we talk today. And so let's maybe look at a couple instances. We'll start with one here anyways, where we talk about someone being inspired. So you'll remember there's this figure named Moses. Moses was brought out. Uh, God used Moses to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And there's the parting of the Red Sea and the taking them to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and the other laws and all those other things. But before, before any of those events took place, Moses was actually, he was an Egyptian, an Egyptian Jewish man that was kicked out of Egypt and living uh, out in the hills outside of Egypt. Uh, because he had murdered someone and so he had to escape and he was living outside of Egypt. While he was out there, he sees this burning bush one evening. And this is a strange sight. So he walks over to that burning bush to see exactly what's going on. He's a shepherd at this time with his sheep out in the hills. And he sees that burning bush and he walks over to it to try to figure out what the world's going on. And the Bible tells us then that God speaks to Moses and says, take off your sandals, Moses where you're standing is holy ground. So Moses has just stumbled into a place where God has appeared to him or where God is manifesting to him. And God then calls Moses and he says, I want you to leave your life here as a shepherd and I want you to go back to the great, uh, to the great nation of Egypt, go to the capital, and I want you to talk to the Pharaoh and I want you to get all of my children of Israel who are all slaves there to bring them out of Egypt. And I want you to bring them out of Egypt and you're going to bring them right back to this mountain right here. So this is God calling Moses to do that amazing work. How does Moses respond to God? Does Moses say, all right, awesome, let's do it. This is actually how it goes. So again, what God is saying is, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to speak to Pharaoh for me to bring my children of Israel out of Egypt. And how does Moses respond, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? 
Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. So we see there then foreshadowing of the first uh, of the plagues and the first Passover that's going to take place. So this is God calling Moses. Moses says, I'm just not suitable to speak for you, Lord. I'm not suitable at all for this task. And what? Because he says, I haven't been eloquent. And what does God say? He says, you don't need to be eloquent because I will help you speak. So Moses is going to be what we call an inspired prophet of God. What do we mean when we say that he's inspired? This idea that God is going to help him speak, that Moses is going to speak and he's going to say, this is what the Lord says. And what he says after that is going to be what the Lord says. So in some sense, an inspired prophet is someone who God moves to speak for him. And somehow God is going to be directly involved in the process of this prophet speaking. So what comfort is there in knowing that when you share God's word, he'll be your mouth, right? That God is going to be the one doing this. Well, you know that since God is in control of all things and he's putting you right there as the person to, to speak for him, he's going to be there, right? And he's going to make sure you say what you're supposed to say. But in the case of these prophets, they are going to be speaking this very specific thing we call the inspired word of God. What role did eloquence again kind of play in Moses' message to Pharaoh? Um, it doesn't play any role, right? God is going to make sure the message that he needs comes out. What role does eloquence play when you share God's word? A lot of times the way we think is that uh, you think that the more eloquent a Christian is when they share their faith, the more people they'll bring to faith. And that's actually not true. It's not the more eloquent you are that's going to help bring people to faith. Um, the reality is that it's the one who talks most about their faith. I was using this illustration, um, thinking about my son fishing. When my son and I saw him, we go and do a lot of fishing together. And every now and then, uh, while we're in a canoe, just you know, out in the water doing something, maybe he'll get distracted by something and for a little while, you know, kind of put down his rod and, and uh, start getting distracted trying to do this or that. And I'll say to him, so Soren, who catches the most fish? And this is a line we always say to each other, who catches the most fish? And you know what he says back? The person who casts the most. The person who casts the most. And that's, that's a truism in a certain sense. Obviously, there's more to it than that. But if you don't do a lot of casting, you're not going to catch a lot of fish. It's the exact same way when it comes to being fishers of men and women, isn't it? Um, eloquence isn't so much the issue. The issue is speaking. Because when you speak, you are speaking God's law and gospel, his word. And God promises that his word is the thing that's powerful. His word is the thing that actually does the work. And so uh, don't worry too much about how eloquent you are. Sure, work on that if you want. 
but do not put your confidence in the eloquence of your speech because that is not the thing that does the work. The thing that does the work is the power of God's word and the Holy Spirit working through that word. That's going to do the work. Simply speak God's word. But here again, the picture we've got is Moses is going to be considered uh, one of the great inspired prophets of the Old Testament. He's going to be inspired by God to write down the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And we're just getting a taste here for what it means to be an inspired prophet and for to speak the inspired words of God. God is going to somehow be helping Moses through this active in that process. But we'll see a lot more examples in the next few weeks here, uh, more concrete ways, and we'll elaborate on this idea of eloquent or this idea of inspiration. But the first kind of major idea I want to talk about is this idea of, well, what's so special about Scripture? What's so special about this thing we call the Bible? And we're going to do this by looking at exactly what the Bible itself says is so special about the Bible. We're going to be looking at Scripture itself to see what it claims about itself. And so here we've got a passage from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was written by Paul, and he was writing 2 Timothy, and he was writing this letter to a, a man named Timothy, a pastor that he had trained and that he had brought up. And so this is Paul, who is the Apostle Paul, who is speaking to Timothy, a pastor. That's who's speaking to who here. And notice what uh, Paul says here to Timothy. He says, from infancy, you, Timothy, have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So again, who's, who's writing this? It's Paul, and he's writing this to Timothy. And so the New Testament is right now just starting to be written, we might say. Out there somewhere in the Mediterranean world, you probably have Luke putting his finishing touches on Luke and the book of Acts. You've got Paul writing his letters and things like that. Uh, so you've got the New Testament that's starting to get put together. This letter right here is going to be part of the New Testament as well. But when Paul speaks to Timothy and he says, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. When Timothy was an infant, was the New Testament around? No, not at all. So what is it then that Paul is talking about when he calls this the Holy Scriptures? What are the Holy Scriptures that Timothy knew from his infancy? What Holy Scriptures was Timothy raised on? It was what we call the Old Testament the books of the Old Testament, beginning with those five books written by Moses. So in other words, what we've got here is we've got Paul calling the Old Testament the Holy Scriptures. All right, these are the Holy Scriptures. And what does he say about, or he's calling the Old Testament the Holy Scriptures. And what does he say about the Old Testament? He says that it is God-breathed. God-breathed. What does that mean? Well, this is the this is the place where we get the idea of inspired because the word inspire, what it at least etymologically means is to be blown into, right? It's uh, for a breath to go into someone. And so when Paul says that all scriptures God breathed, we, one way we could translate is he's saying all scripture is inspired. Someone has, that God, has, has been God inspired, that God has blown into uh, the 
the writers of the scripture. That's what he's saying, that somehow God himself is present and working through all the people that wrote down those Old Testament scriptures. And because God himself is the one that, in a sense, blew all of these words into the writers of the Old Testament, that means they're writing down God's word and it's useful. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Peter, the apostle Peter, he wrote these words. He says this in his second letter, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here now, Peter is talking about these persons that we call prophets. And what's so special about these prophets? Well, these prophets, when they wrote things down or spoke things, they were not the ones that were ultimately coming up with the things that they were writing down. Instead, Peter says that what they wrote didn't have their origin in their will, but instead they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So who's he talking about when he's talking about prophets here, about prophecy? Well, it's possible that he could have in mind some of the New Testament writers. Paul talks about that in 2 Peter, but who he definitely has in mind here, who he's most certainly talking about. The word prophet, spoken by a Jew, has is talking about those Old Testament prophets, the people that wrote down the Old Testament. And he's saying that that Old Testament, it's completely reliable. So pay attention to it. Right? It's like a light shining in a dark place, um, as we were getting the title of this series from, right? The light in the darkness. And so it's this light because God spoke through the prophets to give us his truth, this truth uh, in a world full of untruth. But that's the idea that he's, that he's saying here, right? Is that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they are inspired. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what this doesn't mean is that they necessarily went into like a trance and like a kind of trance-like robot wrote things down. Instead, there's uh, several different ways that, that God will use a prophet or an apostle to write down his scriptures. But what it does mean is that every single word that that prophet wrote down, God wanted that prophet to write down. That God's specific message that he wanted for uh, all believers throughout all time, he's got written down just the way that he wants it in scripture. That the prophets, um, that they did, not, they did not corrupt the message that God wanted to give to us. The gospel writer, Luke, writes down, uh, records Jesus saying this. So Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. So this is from a event at the end of the ministry or at the end of uh, the life of Christ on earth. It is right after the resurrection. And on that first Easter day, after Jesus rose from the dead, there were a couple disciples, two disciples that were walking on a road to a city named Emmaus. And as they were walking there, these disciples, they were juggling in their mind, trying to figure out all the events of what had happened lately. 
the, their teacher, Jesus, had been crucified three days earlier. He had been crucified, and this was supposed to be the Messiah who was supposed to come and establish a new kingdom here on earth, but then he got killed on the cross. But he, he said he was going to do that. And he also said that three days later he was going to rise. And then they found news that morning that's, that the tomb had actually been found empty. And so they're trying to juggle all these things, and they just, they just can't wrap their heads around what's going on. And Jesus appears to them. But when he appears to them, he doesn't appear to them and let them know that, that he's the Jesus that they've grown to know in the past years. Instead, he keeps his identity veiled in some way. And he just hears them talk about how confused they are about everything. And after they've kind of laid out uh, all of their confusion, Jesus says this to them. He says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And so Jesus then, before revealing who he was to these two disciples, he first, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what he was, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the first thing that Jesus wanted to do was not just show himself miraculously to these two disciples, but instead he wanted to show them how all of the Old Testament scriptures, because again, the New Testament hasn't been written yet, how all the Old Testament had been pointing to him and pointing to the need for this Christ to suffer and then enter glory. He wanted to show how the whole Old Testament was all about him and about what had been happening in those days. But what do we have here? We've got Jesus calling that Old Testament the scriptures and how all these prophets in the scriptures, God had been using them to point towards him. All we're trying to establish at this point, looking at these passages so far, is this very clear truth that the Bible talks about. The Old Testament is God's word. Okay, so those uh, books of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, the ones that were written uh, before Jesus' birth, they were written roughly from around uh, 1400 BC to about uh, 300 BC in that time frame over around a thousand year period, those books that have been preserved for us in the Old Testament, they are God's word, okay? God inspired them. God used prophets to write down his message, his words to us. This is a clear fundamental truth that we've got in scripture. Earlier, before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, in fact, the day before, on the evening of Maundy Thursday, Jesus got together with his disciples. And so this was the evening that he established the Lord's Supper with them. And this is when he washed their feet. And then after that, as they were walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, or maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane, John records for us in his gospel this very long talk that that Jesus has with his disciples. So we get to see Jesus laying out his heart to the disciples, letting them know what's to come, trying to prepare them. We get to see the heart of Jesus for uh, the 12 disciples or the 11 disciples. And this is one of the things that Jesus tells his disciples about to get them ready for what's to come. So he says to them, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you 
all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So what's Jesus promising here? Jesus is promising that he's going to send an advocate. What's an advocate? Think of maybe like an advocate in the courtroom setting. This is someone that speaks on behalf of you, right? Speaks up for you. This advocate, this person that will come who is an advocate for the disciples, who is he? He's the Holy Spirit. So here we have a person, a male person, that is called the Holy Spirit who will be an advocate for the disciples. And what's this Holy Spirit going to do? The Father is going to send him in Jesus' name in order to teach you all things and to remind you of everything I have said to you. So this Holy Spirit is going to help these disciples. On the one hand, he's going to teach them new things. And on the other hand, he's going to remind them of the things that they, uh, the things that Jesus had taught them and they had seen when they had been with Jesus. So Jesus' ministry lasted for about three years. When you went uh, to, away to university or college and you did three years of class work, did you remember everything that you learned? No. I forget what the actual statistic is. A lot of these studies say you only, you only retain around 10, 15% of, uh, of what you actually learn when you go through college or university. So you forget a lot of things. So think about these disciples. They had three years with Jesus. You know, they had a good kind of university education as disciples of Jesus. Um, but they're not going to remember everything. Here, God promises that the Holy Spirit will help them remember, will help them remember the things that Jesus had taught them and the things that had gone, that had happened. And on top of that, he's going to teach you as well. He's going to teach you new things. So if you're being taught something, you're learning something that you didn't know before. So the Holy Spirit's going to do these two things. Well, what do we call the writings of the apostles, the writings of the people that had been with Jesus or have been instructed by Jesus or uh, were with the, uh, with the apostles? What do we call their writings uh, where we are reminded of everything that happened during Jesus' ministry, and we're being taught new things by God and the Holy Spirit. What do we call that? We call that the New Testament. So before we saw how uh, all of the New Testament writers considered the Old Testament God's word, here Jesus is promising his disciples the New Testament. He's promising them that the Holy Spirit's going to come and help them to create uh, the New Testament. Um, He's talking about not just the New Testament, but also, you know, they're preaching and teaching in general, but included in that for sure is going to be uh, their writings and their teachings um, on behalf of God, right? Jesus easier, uh, earlier had said to his disciples, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. So on one level, we know that this is kind of a principle that applies to all Christians, that all Christians um, are going to be speaking out the gospel message. And if anyone rejects the gospel message that a Christian preaches, they're not just rejecting the messenger, they're also rejecting Christ himself, right? So that's one of the truths that's being taught here. But what's also, I think, on some subtext of this is the idea that on another level, God gave the apostles a special type of authority to speak for him. And here he's telling the disciples um, that 
if people reject them in their teaching, they're going to be rejecting him as well. All this to, to solidify this very clear point that we have in Scripture, that not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament itself, we call God's Word. The New Testament is God's Word. That means all the apostles were inspired just like the prophets in the Old Testament. They were all moved by the Holy Spirit to write down words. Again, we're not talking about that means that they went into a trance and like robots wrote things down, but that as they wrote down their letters and their teachings and their memoirs, God was making sure that everything that he wanted to communicate to you and me and all believers uh, after, after Christ, they were writing that down, that the writers did not corrupt the message that God wanted for you and me. So the New Testament is God's word. One point when Jesus was preaching in his ministry and teaching, as Jesus was saying some of these uh, teachings and parables and things like that, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So this is Jesus speaking, right? This is Jesus. And what's Jesus' big kind of point here? What was Jesus' expectation of how we respond to God's word. He wants us to hear it, right? To listen to it. Think of maybe uh, Mary and Martha, that, that event in Jesus' life where you've got uh, Martha that's busy trying to prepare meals, a meal and things like that for Jesus. And what's Mary doing? Sitting at Jesus' feet, uh, that she's uh, doing the greater thing there. So he wants us to listen to God's word, but on top of listening to it, he wants us to obey it. He wants us to obey God's word. What does it mean to obey God's word? We can categorize that into two different ways that the Bible talks about obedience to God's word. On the one hand, there's obeying God's law. So everything that God desires as far as how we ought to live in this life. Think of Ten Commandments, things like that. Uh, God wants us to not murder, but he wants us to take care of our neighbors. He doesn't want us to commit adultery, but to love our spouses. All of these uh, all these desires for how we ought to live in life. We hear it, we listen to it being uh, communicated to us from God's word, and then God expects us to do it. Um, but we can't do that perfectly, right? We can't keep it perfectly. Sin has, has uh, so polluted us that we can't keep God's word perfectly. And so there's another way that scripture talks about obeying God's word. On the one hand, there's obeying uh, law portions of God's word, but there's also times when obedience is also talking about faith, uh, to believe, to, uh, to believe God's word, uh, to believe that when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, to believe it, that's a sense of obedience as well. God wants us to obey him when he says, uh, believe in me, right? Uh, and so we've got these two different applications of obedience. One is obedience to God's law. The other is obedience to God's gospel. And scripture teaches us very clearly that when we obey God's gospel, it's really not us doing it. It's the Holy Spirit that's working through us um, to give us the ability to do that because we're dead in our sins, according to Ephesians 2, right? Completely dead in our sins. So the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to do that. But that doesn't stop God from treating us like humans with wills, and he tells us to obey his word. So all this to say that there's a very clear 
imperative in scripture to obey God's word. Jesus also once said, it's written man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This was during the temptation of Jesus um, in the wilderness from Satan. And he says this very powerful phrase, man does not live on bread alone, but instead, what does he live on? The words that come from the mouth of God. Well, what are the words that come from the mouth of God? Well, we've already seen what that is, right? That's the Old Testament and the New Testament, the inspired words of God for us. And so what does it mean to live on them? Uh, this means that it becomes the center of our lives. So we're talking about things like your devotional life, being in God's word and letting God's word permeate you and grow in you as you meditate on it. This means uh, going to church and hearing the law and gospel preached to you. This means having discussions with your friends and family about God's word, right? And other Christians and living on that word, right? Going to it daily on food. Jesus says, live on God's word. So this is... Uh, This is a photo that was taken during one of Gandhi's fasts. So if you know anything about Mahatma Gandhi, one of the ways that he helped motivate people to stop being violent, especially when he became such a major figure in India, is he would fast to try to get violence to stop. And so this was just one of his famous ways of doing it, that maybe when there was fighting between uh, Hindus and Muslims and things like that in certain cities, he would go to that city and fast until the fighting would stop. And he did this a number of times. And the very last time he did this, there was a reporter that was visiting at that time and visited Gandhi while he was in the middle of his fast. And as he was observing Gandhi fasting, this is what the reporter said. Somehow we never think of a Gandhi fast as a terrible physical experience. We think of it as a political maneuver, a strike, a gesture. But here it was in human terms, a process. Here was a 79-year-old man deliberately killing himself in the most difficult and excruciating way. The point being is that while he was watching Gandhi, he was looking at a man who is fasting. And what does fasting mean? It means starving yourself possibly to death. It means your body is withering away in a suffering, painful experience. And it was a very visual, visible experience to the reporter. He could see Gandhi wasting away in front of him and there was nothing beautiful about it. There was nothing glorious about it. It was an ugly, ugly thing to see this man dying in an excruciating way. So how long can you go without food or water, right? If we say both, it's about three or four days that you can go without food or food and water. And if you're going without food and water, my point here is, is it shows, you can see if someone is going out, is going on without food and water. Now here's my big question. Does a spiritual fast show? If you go three or four days without God's word, can you tell in the same way as someone that's physically dying? No. Right? You can't see someone withering in the exact same way as someone that's not taking physical food and water. But it's even more deadly to go on a spiritual fast. It's even more deadly to go without God's word regularly. 
because without God's word, you don't just die physically. We're talking about eternal death, spiritual death, something that has eternal consequences to it. And this is what Jesus means when he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He means that you cannot live without God's word. You will wither and you will die spiritually, which leads to eternal death. Peter writes this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When Paul was speaking God's word, he was Christ's ambassador. He was speaking on behalf of Christ himself. And he was imploring, and this means to urge and to beg the people that he was talking to, to be reconciled to Christ. So he was speaking uh, on authority here, right? Uh, this is a good example of that second way of obeying God's word that we were talking about. So the first one, when the apostles speak with law authority, they're telling us to live like this. When they're talking with gospel authority, they're telling us uh, to be reconciled to God for the forgiveness of our sins, right? Your sins are taken away. Believe in that. And when you believe in that, uh, that's a form of obedience, right? But it's an obedience that's given to you freely by the Holy Spirit. Um, good. So that kind of lays out our second big point here, or third big point. The Bible has divine authority. God's word deserves the same faith and obedience that God deserves. So God is speaking to us. And if this is the God of the universe and the God who has saved us that is speaking to us, we do what he says. This is God. It carries authority. And this means that it carries all authority over peer pressure, over the governments that we're under. Uh, it even means authority over pastors. If there is anything your pastor says that contradicts God's word, which one is the greater authority? It's God's word. It is the Bible that is the authority over all things. And that's what we've been commanded by Christ himself and the apostles to do. Famous passage from Paul. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Man, what, what is it that God's word is able to do? Right, God's word being that thing that carries the message that our sins are forgiven through Christ. What, is it, what does it do? It gives us faith. It is the thing that creates faith in our hearts, that trust that Jesus in fact is our savior from sin. And in that sense, it gives us that new spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. That's what God's word has the ability to do. And in fact, the Bible doesn't talk about anything else apart from God's word being able to do that, to create faith in our hearts. So Paul also says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. This is Paul speaking, and he's saying the words that we, who's the we he's talking about, but the, the apostles, right? When we speak, it's not human wisdom, but it's the Spirit that's speaking through us, explaining these spiritual reality. Um. He says other, in other places in Romans, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so this is important. Human beings on their own, in the state that we're born in, we cannot choose to believe. We cannot choose to obey God. We are hostile to God. We want nothing to do with him and nothing to do with the gospel. 
We just want nothing to do with Jesus in any way, shape, or form. So how is it that we become a Christian? How is it that, that, uh, that we're able to change from being enemies of God to being friends of God? If we can't do this on our own, where does that power come from? It comes from God's word, right? God's word is that thing that is actively able to do that. Uh, Jesus said this to the Jews who had believed him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so this leads us very clearly to our kind of next two points here. The Bible has divine power. It claims for itself divine power. Only the Holy Spirit working through God's word works knowledge of sin and grace, faith in Jesus, and an inward change in humans. Sometimes we call this efficacious, that the, that the Bible is efficacious. It is effective in and of itself to do all of this supernatural, awesome work in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that does this through God's word. We can't find any other means apart from God's word that it does this efficacious work. So the Bible is powerful. It is powerful. All right. The second thing is we say it's sufficient. The Bible teaches everything a person needs to know to be saved. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing ought to be subtracted from scripture. It is our sufficient spiritual knowledge, spiritual knowledge. We can learn about other things, you know, from other sources. There's no question about that. There's even certain things we can learn about God from uh, other sources like nature and our, and our consciences, but everything that we need to be saved is found in scripture and scripture alone. You don't need anything else other than the gospel message, the long gospel message that you'll find there in scripture. So this is where we're going to kind of wrap things up here is that uh, the Bible talks about itself in at least these five different terms. There's many more that we could add if this was kind of a big systematic theology course, but these are the big kind of takeaways. The Old Testament is God's word. The New Testament is God's word. The Bible has divine authority. And if it has divine authority, it should be the authority in our lives, right? The Bible has divine power. The word itself is active and powerful and does things. The word is the thing that the Holy Spirit works through to create faith in our hearts. And the Bible is sufficient. There isn't anything else that you need in order to be saved than that gospel message that's found in scripture. And we're just going to add one more point here. Uh, just because we've got to say this somewhere, just to kind of make a distinction. Maybe this isn't all that important to some of you, but some of you might find this interesting. So we're saying that God's word is inspired, right? That it is, uh, that it is God's word, the exact words that he wants us to have today. But you might be asking yourself, well, the Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew, and there's all these hundreds of translations throughout time. Are you telling me that God has preserved every single word and every single one of those translations? Um, are you saying that not just the originals, but everything else that people have done with God's word, uh, that that still remains God's word? So we're going to make this distinction. We can make a distinction between the materia or the letters, words, and sentences of scripture and the forma or meaning conveyed by the words. All right. So can you kind of intellectually make this distinction. There's the words themselves in a document, and then there's the meaning of those words. So the words themselves, as they're kind of constructed, we're going to call the materia. And then there's the meaning, the what you derive from those words, we're going to call the forma. Okay. 
Now, with that kind of distinction, this is what we're going to say. In the original documents, let's say one of the letters that Paul wrote, like 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, in the original documents, both the materia and forma were inspired. So what we would say today is that uh, the original Greek letters that were written down by the New Testament writers, uh, the Hebrew books that were written down and the couple Aramaic ones, uh, that those things, both in every single word and letter as was given, as was written down by the inspired writers, um, and the meaning derived from them, that both of those were inspired by God. So each and every word that, the, that Paul wrote down, God wanted him to write those words. Um, and the meaning then that we get from it, that's inspired as well. Um, that's, that's what we're going to call you know, God's inspired word. Our translations today, we're gonna make this distinction. The materia is not inspired. So in other words, when a translator sits down to translate the Bible, the translator, uh, God does not promise that the Holy Spirit will somehow enter that translator to make sure that that translator writes down every single word that God wants that translator to write down in the same way as the Old Testament writers. So the translations today, the materia is not inspired. And the forma, we would say, is only inspired insofar as it reflects the original forma. So if the translator writes a sentence that uh, conveys a meaning that is not found in the original, that's obviously not inspired, right? And the Holy Spirit is not going to work through that uh, to do his amazing work of creating faith because it's, it's not the truth of, that was originally inspired for that. But if you have a translation that does correctly uh, convey the original meaning of the text, then we would say the Holy Spirit works through that. And the Holy Spirit works through that to create faith. And in that sense, uh, the meaning that's derived from that good translation is authoritative in our lives. And it is powerful. And it is God's word. So that's where we're going to end things today. When we get together next time, we're going to move forward into our next section and start looking at the history of the Old Testament and the transmission of the Old Testament text and the historical context of the Old Testament and things like that.